that's one of the most exciting things to me about collaboration is that you're forced to uh, kind of remove your own intentions from the process and pay enough attention to the process that you can be aware of the, uh, the potential that is there that you didn't bring to it. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Now, after Sir Galahad had smitten down Sir Lancelot as aforetold of, he rode for a long while in a wild forest and had many adventures of diverse sorts, of which no account hath been given, though mention is made of them in the ancient histories of those things which I have read. So begins the seventh chapter of the story of the Grail and the passing of Arthur, as recorded by Howard Pyle. And so begins the lost tales of Sir Galahad, a new collection of stories from Rabbit Room Press. When illustrator Ned Bustard ran across that passage in Howard Pyle's 1910 book, he thought, wouldn't it be fun to read the stories of Galahad's adventures of diverse sorts in that wild forest? Actually, Ned thought, wouldn't it be great to illustrate those stories? But first, the stories needed to be written. So he talked to Pete Peterson, the publisher at Rabbit Room Press. And Pete talked to his wife, the writer and editor Jennifer Trafton. And Pete and Jennifer rounded up 15 or 20 writers who wrote the stories that became the lost tales of Sir Galahad, illustrated by Ned Bustard. In this episode of The Habit Podcast, I speak with Pete Peterson and Jennifer Trafton about how this beautiful book found its way into the world. Pete Peterson, Jennifer Trafton, I'm so glad to have you on The Habit Podcast today to talk about a book that I've been looking forward to for a long time, The Lost Tales of Sir Galahad. Did I say I'm that? happy to be here. Yeah, Lost Tales of Sir Galahad. Thanks for having so us. So this, this book was originally the brainchild of uh, Ned Bustard. He had a, a, a great idea for, for a book. Tell us about, talk to me about where, the, where it came from. Yeah, so uh, Ned and I worked together uh, uh, in Rabbit Room Press. We worked together a couple of years ago to put out a new edition of The Light Princess by George MacDonald. Mm. Ned kind of had the idea. He just really wanted to illustrate it primarily, I think came to me and said, Hey, if I illustrate this, can we put out like a fresh new, you know, edition of it? And I was like, heck yeah, we had for years wanted to reissue some of George McDonald's works. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great process. And we ended up putting out what was a gorgeous book, which is a great experience yeah. for everybody. And uh, as soon as that was off to the presses, Ned came and said, Hey, I got an idea for another similar kind of thing. And I was like, okay, shoot. And he said, well, I've been reading uh, the story of, you know, the grail and King Arthur's passing by Howard Pyle. And uh, I think we could write a collection of Arthurian tales. So the, the, the quote that got him all excited was, um, now after Sir Galahad had smitten down Sir Launcelot, as a foretold of, he rode for a long while in a wild forest and had many adventures of diverse sorts of which no account hath been given. Though mention is made of them in ancient histories, and those things which I have read. So that really tantalized his imagination, and it opens up the potential to just do anything with uh, the Galahad story. Yeah. You know, so as long as Galahad doesn't find the grail, you know, because he hasn't actually set out to accomplish that yet, you've got, you know, just kind of carte blanche to be able to do anything you want with the story. And it's, you know, just a field ripe for fun. Yeah. And so he said let's get all of our friends together and just write short stories about Galahad. And I thought, okay, that sounds really easy. 
Let's do that. <laughs> and of course, he wanted to illustrate the whole thing. I think especially he wanted to illustrate a bunch of weird monsters. Yeah. <laughs> but like, if, if you know Ned's work too, like, you know, that his kind of uh, focus is on, you know, like medieval imagery. Yeah. So he does line of cuts and he's just, his work is full of symbolism and uh, images from Christian history. And so I think the idea of working in Arthur, Arthurian legend with creatures and knights and all of this various symbolism just lit him up. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's just charge forward and do that. And well, so it got complicated. <laughs> 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 and the reason it got complicated is when you say, hey, we'll get all our friends to do this fun thing. That sounds great until you realize how busy all of your friends are. Yeah. So, you know, we thought, you know, I'll write one and Jennifer will write one and Andrew will write one. and Jonathan will write one. It's just everybody in our whole little kind of close knit community could write one of these stories. Only short stories are really hard. They are. Um, they're really hard and they take time. And it just turned out that while everybody wanted to, few had the time to actually accomplish it. So eventually we got to the point where we've got five ish, you know, mm -hmm. kind of short stories for this book. And we thought, man, that's a really thin book. I don't know that this was really the vision. Uh, so Ned started thinking, who else can I invite? And he invited some folks in his circles. Um, and they, that started coming together. And then ultimately, we thought, you know, you, Jonathan, with your whole habit community, yeah. um, you've got all sorts of talented writers mm -hmm. out there. What if we invited that community to be a part of it and just see what happens? And it was risky. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Like when you start inviting people to write, that whose work you do not know, uh -huh. you really don't know if you're going to get anything usable or not. Uh, and it was delightful to see that there was all sorts of good stuff coming in. And it, we really got to turn into, um, you know, kind of cherry pickers. We got to come through and really pick the things that we loved. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, that, well, and I was Jennifer, just, I was so, and so thrilled that the, something like a dozen stories came in from the, the habit community, I think. I think I mean, we got I mean, more they, than, oh, they no, got more selected. Than that. We got an, like an avalanche of submissions. It was wonderful, and so we yeah. had we had to winnow down. And we can talk more about that selection process um, later. But I think we whittled it down to twelve ish. Yeah, uh, yeah that's really where Jennifer came in too, because I was originally going to be the editor, and then when we got this avalanche of stories, I was just like, oh my gosh, because I'm involved in you know three or four other books at the time and sure. various other things. And just didn't have time to do the coming through and the editing and the feedback on all these folks. So I asked Jennifer if she would help, and she's been amazing. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I love the – I mean, so there's the one there, – we sort of have a frame story within the frame story, right? I mean, we've, we've got the, the idea of the wild forest with the missing tails, um, which was really fun. But then there's the question of why suddenly have all these – works appeared in 2022 um, that were lost, you know, centuries ago. So uh, Jennifer, tell me about the, this, the other frame story that you came up with. The Oh, it was so fun. And, and originally when I think that Ned had pitched it, he had this idea of, you know, these, the lost stories that have been discovered and then were sort of, you know, the conceit being that there's, we're adding all these scholarly comment, you know, scholarly commentary and footnotes and stuff. Um, I love that idea. So I, I went, I, I had in, in mind something akin to like the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. Um, and my dad is a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. 
Okay. Like I grew up, we, we, as a family, we grew up with like Dead Sea Scrolls as a, you know, just a, a, a thing that we, that we all knew and we talked about. And my dad had a game that he would play with his students and, and our family helped with of creating all these manuscripts that, that we would like tear up and smear jelly on <laughs> and burn the edges of. Oh, wow. We would write all these different manuscripts and, and it was, you know, he was recreating the, mm. The process of the discovery of all these things and then how you put them together and how you decipher them so my brain went to that and i i sat down and i picked my dad's you know my, my dad's brain for that afternoon about like okay well, you know tell me about exactly how the things were discovered and how the the various states of the different manuscripts um so i had that piece in my head of like okay what if this was if i do a comedic version of this instead mm -hmm. of the shepherd boy throwing a, a stone into the cave in Qumran, i have a tourist throwing a selfie stick into the Mer merlin's cave in Tintagel, and you know um then at one of the earliest stories that came in one of the earliest submissions that i read at least was tracy hackle's uh. story which was about a four lines of actual manuscript and pages and pages and pages of footnotes. <laughs> Hilarious and brilliant. And it was exactly what I had been hoping for in terms of um, that kind of tone of mock scholarly seriousness about something very, very, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and she was, she, her, her submission was such a gift in that early the stage of the process for me because she came up with this, the Galahadic, the Society of Galahadic Study and Emulation, <laughs> a whole cast of scholarly characters led by NIT Wit, um, and she had come up with with a kind of origin story that we ended up massaging a little bit. Um, so she, it, it was just such a gift because I had all this raw material in her footnotes. Yeah of things that could be running jokes throughout the whole book. Uh -huh. And so then I, th that was the other piece in my brain, uh, you know, with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls idea and then, and, and um, her, her wonderful, <laughs> crazy, you know, um, massive footnotes. And so that's why I wrote this intro and then I went back to Tracy and we, um, you know, we, we, we edited and, and added a few details to her, uh, footnotes just to make it consistent, but otherwise, that was all her. That was all Tracy. Her, you know, those footnotes are all hers. Oh, that's so, so funny. Once we had that overall conceit, it was just Pete and I just had a blast going through the whole collection and adding footnotes um, to, you know, to to just add to this whole overarching story. That was it. Was just it was fun. It was fun, and it was it was yeah. also fun. Like, it's not just that we've discovered these stories, but we're treating it as if it's history. Yeah. Like, Galahad was a real person. Yeah. Like, and, and he was lost, and we have discovered the answer to these questions. Yeah. And that's what made it so fun. <laughs> yeah. And you also had the problem of, you know, because you're the the writers of these stories weren't cooperating with one another, you've got all kinds of contradictions and, yeah. and differences in tone and... Uh, exactly. So that Tell was one that. of the fun, one of the most fun things for me was the contradictions, <laughs> because that presents so many fun footnote opportunities. So, like you know, there's one story early in the book where Merlin shows up and is like a character, and mm -hmm. then there's another story later where Merlin is actually dead for a thousand years in a tomb <laughs> or something. And so you know, like you just you think about it, and you know, okay, do we have these in the right order? And you know, what what, what do we do? And the ultimate answer is, oh, you footnote it. 
and you acknowledge that one of these people is lying. You know, like, <laughs> you know, we don't know how to justify this. Therefore, something something is up. You know, it's just it just gets into a whole bunch of fun stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was the tonal thing was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, you know the the tones that we got ran the gamut from like uh, really uh, kind of uh, recreations of medieval tales uh-huh. that just fully lean into the syntax and the spellings and the super moralistic kind of uh, uh, allegorical you know way those tales work where everything is a you know, oh, this is Jesus, and this means the Holy Spirit, and that kind of thing. So some of those are like complete recreations of the, the tales of the period. And then there were others that are just completely goofy and, uh, you know, Monty Python-esque uh, on the other end. And some were just very wistful and beautiful and really lovely pieces of literature. And so trying to, to reckon with, okay, how do we fit all these into one book was really part of the, a big part of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, like, I think one good example is Junius Johnson, who is a scholar who loves medieval literature. I think he's actually, he studied uh, maybe at Harvard or Yale, got his doctorate in medieval literature. I can't, mm-hmm. don't, sorry, Junius, that may be wrong, <laughs> but it's something like that. But, uh, you know, he submitted his first tale, and it was absolutely him kind of geeking out about the uh, the opportunity to recreate this thing that he loves in yeah. great detail in his own way. And it was great in that way, but it just didn't fit um, yeah. with the tone of everything else. And it and it ultimately wasn't, I don't think, as fun to read as it needed to be because it was this recreation thing rather yeah. than a reinvention. And so, like, we actually went back to him as like, hey, you did great work here, but like, try try something in in this direction and just gave him you know a few ideas about a way to do it and that brought it into the modern era in a, in a little bit clearer way mm-hmm. and so he went back and completely rewrote a whole new story and i think he just knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. so he's still very clearly referencing all the things he loves from medieval literature but you know it's it's accessible and it's readable and it's fun and uh it's it, it's what I think it's what Tolkien talks about in his uh, cauldron of story, right? Like whenever we sit down to write, we're taking a scoop out of all the stuff that's stirring around in our brain yeah. and we're putting it together into something new. And so, you know, I think Junius's first story was his recreation of a recipe that somebody else wrote. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then his second story is him actually dipping into the cauldron story and creating something new that's his yeah. out of all the flavors that are in his own pot. Yeah. It's really fun to look through these stories. You know, many of, I mean, most of which were written by people I know and to see, okay, this is the subject matter. They were, they were constrained in their subject matter, but this still seems like this person's yeah. obvious, you know, from what I know of this person, of course they wrote this, yeah. and, you know, in my story, there's a, there's basically a frontier boaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was kind of, you know, I, I love those kind of, you know, those kind of Western frontier boaster type stories. And once I realized that that tradition goes all the way back, you know, to, you know, many centuries back in Europe, I thought, Oh, I know, I know where this story's going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and that, uh, just, and, that was so much fun to see that the, the, the variety of tone and style and to allow them to all coexist in this one book. Um, yeah. That was, you know, we, we talked a lot about that. How do we, um, there, we, there's a kind of honoring of the past and an honoring of the stories of the past by, by recreating and, and preserving. And that would have been a beautiful book. And mm -hmm. um, and there's a kind of a recreated, uh, uh, an honoring the past that is taking um, a seed and then planting it in your own soil and seeing what comes of that. And that was the kind of book we were excited about doing. It was that second kind of book yeah. um, of just seeing, okay, like drop this seed into different people's <laughs> imaginations and see what comes out that is their own. And that yeah. was really exciting to us. Yeah. Yeah. And then so like fun. even the, like the editorial process of figuring out how to make a coherent book out of all of these styles <clears throat> was problematic. <laughs> you know, like Jennifer and I beat our heads against the wall a lot trying to figure out how does the, how did these two stories coexist in the same book without it seeming just like a mess. Yeah. And, and I think like we really came up with an arc for the book that feels good. And Jennifer, do you want to talk? Because you were kind of the one that recognized the seasonal aspect. That was really fun for me to think that reconciling the tone, that was, that was definitely a long, <laughs> long conversation. But just figuring out the arc of the story itself was really fun um, because we ended up, you know, we chose stories that had a lot of variety. We were intentionally trying to get different kinds of manuscripts, you know, a manuscript that is completely shredded in all footnotes, a manuscript that is um, bits and pieces of a journal. Uh, so we had all these different, you know, all this variety and the, all the variety of tone and style and, and kind of story. Um, but it was fun to me to then think about the content of Galahad's journey and these as episodes in a particular journey mm. and to figure out what that story arc was. And it, it, a lot of that fell into place very naturally because I was noticing that um, many of the stories alluded to the season mm. and it seemed to follow a pattern that there were, there were a lot of summer stories that had much more of a innocent adventuring um, fairy tale kind of feel. And then there were others that, that had a more autumnal feel to them. like, okay, this is later in the journey. Galahad's tired and he's hungry and he's yeah. you know, getting a little bored of all this. And, he's, um, and then there were several stories that were set in the winter that had a much more serious, dark tone. And so uh, once I, I saw, okay, there are, there are a few kind of place marker stories here that, ha that have that seasonal change and others that, can, that fit tonally into those seasons. Mm -hmm. And that gave me a kind of a, just a, a framework for thinking about the journey itself and how, you know, it starts in this very summery, exciting, like we're, we're going off in an adventure kind of way. It hits difficulty. It hits, um, you know, uh, all kinds of, of problems. And we end up in the pit of despair, <laughs> you know, the, that, yeah. that dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. um, and then we we end up with this vision of of spring and of release and of a new you know a new uh, a sense of purpose mm. and and so that's the arc that that kind of came about. In, in a lot of that was just it, it happened naturally, um, and a lot of those more serious, darker themes um, we've we've kept towards the end of the book. Mm -hmm. um, 
which felt tonally right. And also there's a kind of maturing that happens over the course of the book for the stories and for Galahad. You know, a lot of the, the I think the more childlike tales are in the uh-huh. beginning uh-huh. half of the book. And then we get to the more mature sort of stories towards the end. And we see Galahad himself changing and maturing. Yeah. What I it love feels like about this that, is almost, I'm sorry, Pete, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say what I love about that is the way that this whole collection is settled in the Galahad, you know, narrative, you know, overall mm-hmm. is that, you know, he can't have discovered the grail yet. Um, so all these stories are pre grail quest essentially. Uh, and Galahad, according to Arthurian legend is just this perfect person. Like he's foretold to be the one who finds the grail and all, all this foretelling about him. And he's you know, like sinless and perfect and beautiful and all these things. Um, and what I loved about this collection is he's none of those things in this, <laughs> you know? And so then uh, you, you follow him on this journey through the wild forest. And by the time you get to the end of the book, uh, there's the sense that he has finally become the person hmm. who is ready to seek the grail. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of a beautiful arc to me. I love it. And it seems to me that there's this, this is sort of an ethos of, of so many rabbit room projects that, that you sort of tell people, do your thing and we'll trust that a theme will emerge, a, a pattern will emerge, you know, whether that's the, the molehill or, or the, the talks at a, you know, the talks at a Hutchmoot, there's no theme, yeah. but a theme always seems to emerge. It is baffling and wonderful. It's yeah. one of my favorite things in the world. Like, uh, I, I, I feel like I've been, I've had the benefit of seeing that kind of thing happen so often over the last decade, yeah. um, where it's become easier for me to trust the process. But it is, it's wonderful and beautiful and terrifying, you know, to just th- cast the net wide and trust that all the fish you catch are going to taste like they belong in the soup. <laughs> That's a weird metaphor. Yeah. But, uh, but like, it, it really is true, you know, and uh, that's one of the most exciting things to me about collaboration is that you're forced to uh, kind of remove your own intentions from the process mm. and pay enough attention to the process that you can become, you can, you can be aware of the, uh, the potential that is there that you didn't bring to it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're talking uh, like so, a playwright now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That, that applies to the playwriting process too. You know, you create, you have your own intention, mm-hmm. but then once all these other people get involved, they're going to make it something much bigger than what you'd planned. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and embracing that is critical. I think like if you're scared of that, I think what you create is ultimately going to be lesser than it could have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, th- I think it's, it's tempting to think of the editor as a person who's sort of a, puppet master, you know, sort of conf- who's, who's the boss, who, you know, who's the boss of the process. And, um, and I don't, I mean, good editors aren't the boss of the process. I mean, good editors are trying to, to or shepherds of the process. Yeah. Right. And this, it feels like this particular project, the work y'all did as editors here is like an exaggeration of what editors are always doing, which is helping the, the, the writer yeah. be more of, herself or himself. Yeah, that's absolutely the way I think about editing. Like it's my job to help the writer and the story become the best version of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To get out of the way and help the writer get out of the way sometimes. Yeah. Um, 
Now, am I correct in my understanding that that the the index is is or the table of contents <laughs> is sort of a, a treasure map for this book? I, I thought that was a brilliant idea. Well, we we refer to it as the table of malcontents. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you pay too close attention to the table of malcontents, you will be led astray uh, in the wild forest. And the, the book will contain um, a map to allow you to find your way through. Yes. Excellent. Well, <laughs> that's we'll, all I have to say about it. We'll that. let people experience that to themselves. <laughs> it's entirely intentional. Yeah. That's of course. The, the, that's the, the foresight does. to insert a table of malcontents instead of just a regular table of contents, I thought was just brilliant. That's right. An editor does not make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say, uh, along the lines of collaboration, I have never co-edited a book before. Hmm. And uh, I've certainly well, never co-edited a what did you, you say, say, Jennifer? Our marriage survived it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I've certainly never co-edited anything with somebody I was married to. Uh, <laughs> and it got a little heated at times. Yeah. But it was a really fun process in the end. It was so fun. Yeah. Can you say anything more specific about times that got heated? Well, I mean, basically, there are times when I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> We have very uh, good arguments about grammar sometimes. Uh, <laughs> that's very true. I love um, breaking the rules of grammar, especially if they sound right to my ear and I'm trying to come up with a, uh, a an archaic kind of sound. Mm-hmm. So I can argue my way around my elbow to, to say something wrong because I want to say it wrong. Yeah. And I think Jennifer hates that. Yeah. It is still wrong. Right, <laughs> and she is right. Yeah, <laughs> time like we re- we really just thoroughly enjoyed working on it together. We don't we don't get to collaborate together very often on projects. We mm-hmm. have our own creative projects all the time, and so this was kind of a new experience for us to really collaborate on one project together. And I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. I, I'm probably exaggerating when I say it got heated a lot. It wasn't heated. It was just. It was a lot, and it was emotional, but not in, not because we were disagreeing, just because we were both passionate about things. And yeah. you know, it always sucks when you have to s- decide whether somebody's in or out, yeah. right? You know, and this was a case when there were multiple people that we had to say, "Hey, we just can't," or that we had to go back to with you know hard feedback sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't always necessarily because what they had written was wrong. Sometimes it's like for this book, it's right. going to need to be this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a conversation we've we've had over at the Habit Membership more than once. Is the fact that you that you know your colleague's piece got accepted and yours didn't doesn't mean necessarily that one was better than yours. It may be it just doesn't fit, or, or there are lots of reasons. It, it, that selection process was about a lot of things, not just about the quality, but about the you know we we could see the big picture of where things uh-huh. were going to fit into that big picture. We knew the the, the scope and the variety that we wanted. Um, different kinds of creatures you mm-hmm. Know, mm-hmm. for Ned to draw, like you yeah. know, things like that. Um, I it, it was it's kind of like when I was a magazine editor and I had to put together a bunch of different articles into something that felt coherent. And there's so there is the you know making something sound like that author's voice, but you also have to make it work with the whole 
you know, the whole thing. Um, and, you know, so that, that did require some, you know, going back to some authors and saying, oh, you know, this is great, but we, we need it to fit mm-hmm. the larger story being told and we need to fit it, it to fit tonally. So, yeah, that was a, a yeah. And, and, uh, crossing the threshold of it being good enough is just one of the, obviously it has to be good enough. Well, that's, I I would even argue that that's not even the threshold sometimes. Mm, Yeah. Sometimes it's about whether the idea is good enough. Yeah. yeah. Because I think there were some stories that, you know, just on a writing level, I might've thought this is not good enough, but the kernel of the idea at the heart of it was really something that I thought, you know what? I love this idea enough that I want to work with this writer to polish this up and make it good enough because it's an idea that I want in the book. Yeah. And so that can be part of it too. And then there could be another story that's very well written that just didn't have an idea at its core that was, you know, lighting me up in the same way. So mm-hmm. it's complicated. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, a, a great clarification that, that even good enough isn't the, the threshold. Yeah. They yeah. turned down some that were like, um, it really broke my heart to turn them down because they were like, clearly really talented writers, um, great writing, but it was like, it was an idea and a story that wasn't working and would have required just too much unstitching and restitching. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't about the quality of writing, you know, and that, yeah. that that's hard. It's hard yeah. To, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about genre. And there are a lot of, we, we've talked about different story ideas and different creatures, but there's also a lot of different genres. Yes. In the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's at least one narrative poem in there. Oh, so I, I, let me talk about that really quickly. <laughs> okay. So the, the only part of the book that is written in verse is by Malcolm Gite. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is actually staying upstairs right now. Uh, and I was hoping he could pop in and join us today, but I don't think that's going to work out. But he told me last night, he was, I, I got to show him the hard copy of the book for the first time, and he was absolutely delighted. Yeah. And uh, he said, you know, it's a funny thing, like when you're writing or, or when, you're, you're, uh, you, when you're doing something, your brain often wants to go off and do something else, uh-huh. right? So if there's something in front of you that you have to do, inevitably what happens is that you would prefer to be doing the other thing. Yeah. And uh, so he said that how this Galahad poem of his had come about was he was actually doing his taxes <laughs> and he desperately didn't want to be doing his taxes. And he decided that what he should do instead was to go off and write a poem about Galahad. And he did. And it just all spilled out. Oh, that's great. Uh, and I think, well, I should probably not discuss it, but I think he might have more Galahad in him. Oh, that good. May come out I in some so. form or fashion eventually. Excellent. Well, my, when I heard about this project and, and, uh, you invited me to contribute. My first thought was, I'm going to write a poem. And then I heard Malcolm Guy was writing a poem. And I thought, mm. <laughs> my, one, my one regret is that there's not more poetry in the, in the collection. Yeah. I would like to um, have had more, but that's what a- was it. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor was talking about um, when she talked about um, uh, Faulkner, she said, you know, you, you don't want to have your, uh, your mule and wagon stuck on the train track when that, when that, when the Dixie specialist coming down the line, I <laughs> felt when I heard that Malcolm was doing it. Was yeah. He wants to be, yeah. It's the kind of thing I'm always telling people not to think. Right. 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 But, I, but it's hard to, it's hard not to, not to think. I will, yeah. I'll be found wanting if my poem is put up next to Malcolm. Right. But we do have a ballad. We have a journal. We have, um, 
what else, what else do we have? We have a fairy story, like a story that's written by fairies. Okay. What else? That one was hard to translate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have detective fiction. Oh yeah. There's a detective story. (laughs) That's right. I forgot about that. Um, By an actual detective writer, a writer of mysteries. Oh, that's great. Uh, uh, Mark Bertrand. Bertrand. Yeah, um, so yeah, and then there's lots of comedy, and then um, you get into the stuff I like, which is more you know high epic kind of things. That's yeah. Doug and Doug and me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And yours, uh, Pete, is is a um, kind of a, an homage to uh, uh, to yeah. uh, Walt Langren. Yeah, the book is actually dedicated to Walt. Um, the de- dedication is. It is dedicated to Walt Wangerin, a true knight of the king. Um, so Walt was a, a friend and a mentor and a real gift to the whole rabbit room community for a long time. And I think, as most of your listeners probably know, one of our great writers. And uh, he died during the process of making this book, which was really emotional for me. Yeah. And I had not written a story. Uh, Actually, I wrote it before he died. Yeah. I, I knew I, I knew that he was coming to the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And when I sat down to write the story, it, for whatever reason, um, I ended up writing a tale that was sort of uh, inspired by the Book of the Dun Cow and, and its characters. And it's about an old knight named Sir Walter who is approaching the end of his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was really emotional. Like I, I wrote it and then I was terrified. Uh, to give it to him because I thought it would sound like I was killing him or something Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it has that kind of note of finality to it. But it was really an homage to me because I recognized that, you know, he had just meant a lot to the community and to me and to American letters in general. And yeah. that was all coming to an end. And then he died in the middle of it. Um, and then the, I actually, as part of his kind of eulogy, eulogy, I, I published the novel online or the, the short story online and got a lot of feedback from people who knew him saying thank you that it yeah. felt like a perfect fitting kind of homage to him. Yeah. So that was a, a weird sort of rare blessing mm-hmm. that I didn't plan, but yeah. felt meant to be. And yeah. it may also in retrospect made me so sad that he didn't write a story for this book I know. because he would have been perfect for it. Yeah. Like he would have just knocked it out of the park. Like, like, you know, I went, we went up to help clean out his office after he passed away and uh, he had been working on several novels and um, multiple novels that he was in the process of were medieval novels about saints. Really? Uh, yeah. It, it, written in that style. And mm-hmm. it just makes me a little sad that he didn't get the chance to, to, go, to go the Galahad route because he would have loved it. Yeah. So it mm-hmm. felt right to dedicate the book to him. That I, I, Thought that was just right. Yeah. And Jennifer, your your piece is the introduction. That is my piece. Yes, and and many of the footnotes. The footnotes were a collective oh, yeah, right. effort between me and Pete and the authors themselves. Uh-huh. So that was that was super fun. But yeah, yeah. And it was an interesting process. Even like 
who's ever heard of an editorial process for footnotes? But <laughs> there was this thing that we went through at the end of the book where we were trying to kind of harmonize the tone of the footnotes. Yeah. You know, yeah. remember that? Oh, Which yeah. is because, you know, some of the, the authors would put their own footnotes in and sometimes it'd be like, well, that obviously just doesn't sound like the right voice, you know, but if it was a good joke, we wanted to make it work. Yeah. It's had to be sound like they were coming from the same voice. Yeah. So we we left that to the end. We we did all the editing of the stories first, you know, literally printed out the whole book. And then Pete and I separately went through and just started, you know, changing or adding or sprinkling these extra footnotes all the way through and just massaging like this understory, you know, yeah. that was going on the whole way through, which was so much fun. <laughs> and um, some, some, some stories, those footnotes are all the author, you know, some, some they're all, some of them, they're a mixture. Yeah. Um, it was, that was a delightful part of the process. Uh, the footnotes are, are so fun and, um, and are so, uh, I love the way Jennifer, you set up in the introduction, you know, mm-hmm. A, a world that these footnotes make sense in. Mm-hmm. And um, that introduction is, is so Jennifer Trafton, even though it says, what is it? Guinevere Trafton. See, I put that, I, I figured it out. I, I, I hope I'm not outing you as the, as that, the true writer of this. But. That's a hard one to figure out. I, <laughs> I have always taken great pride in the fact that um, my name and Jennifer's names are Arthur and, and Jennifer, which is Arthur and, and Guinevere. Yeah. <laughs> so the chance to be the, the chance to be the king and queen of this Galahad tale was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was also interesting in the footnotes, like there were strange considerations you run up against because we're having fun with them. But then you get to a story like Doug McKelvey's, mm-hmm. which is wonderful mm-hmm. and moving and powerful and dark. Um, and you realize that, you know, hey, there, there are a number of great jokes to be made here that would snap the reader right out of the spell yeah. of this tale. Yeah. And so, like, with a note like Doug's, it's, there's a couple of notes right off the bat just to maintain a continuity. And then it's like, you know, we need to get out of the way uh-huh. because it's just going to interrupt, you know, the spell that's being cast. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the more serious stories, we tried to keep those footnotes yeah. um, or in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then I also just, I don't want to finish up this podcast without really giving a shout out to Ned Bustard, yeah. who is the real driving force behind this book. Yeah. Uh, like it was his idea. Um, he was passionate about it. And when I didn't have time to really get the ball rolling, he took it on himself to get the ball rolling. And he's the guy that's driven this thing to the conclusion mm-hmm. that it's come to. And also like the book that he has produced is physically just an amazing artifact. Yeah, it is gorgeous. <laughs> it's just gorgeous. His illustrations, yeah. his design on the interior, his cover design. And this is interesting. Like this book was a collaboration from beginning to end, even physically, because we, Ned did his cover design and it has this kind of like pattern of, uh, of debossed trees on the cover mm-hmm. that were meant to be, you know, no ink. It's just a debossing. It's just a texture that's on the cover. And we sent it off to the factory and they sent us back a sample, a couple of samples. And they said, hey, here's what you asked for. But here's this idea that we think would be even cooler. And if you want us to do this, we won't even charge you for it. Really? And they had added this sort of holographic shimmer to all the tree um, embossing on the Uh cover. And we were like, yes, absolutely, 100%. We want to do that. And so there was even this sort of collaboration that happened with the factory. 
That's which true. I've n- never encountered before. Yeah, I've never especially heard of when something. they're like, "Hey, and if we like it so much, we'll do it for free." Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. Well, yeah, Pete. I mean, uh, Ned uh, did such an both the interior, the inside, the outside. It's just a beautiful book, and uh, it was it was so fun to see Ned, you know, start with this great idea, and then the then the end result be so fantastic. Yeah, and you know. And he wrote for it too. That's right. Yeah. 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 Oh, and yeah. another thing we should not fail to mention is that, like, I think the book is going to be a great read aloud for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a parent, be aware that it does get darker toward the end. Yeah. But it's all, you know, there's nothing inappropriate going on. And they're fun stories that I, yeah. I like, that was one of the visions Ned had that he wanted it to be something that families could read together. And I think it serves that purpose. And I'll be really interested to see and hear feedback on uh, whether that's true or not. Yeah. I would have loved and adored this book when I was a, when I was a 10, 12, 15 year old, I would yeah. have worn it out, read it 14 <laughs> times. I, I couldn't have got enough. Of it. Yeah. Jennifer, is this the kind of thing you would have read when you were young? Yeah. 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 yeah I would have loved it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of those. What, what is that famous old book that I think all of us in my generation had as a kid? That was the uh, Norse myths. Uh, like it was this collection of all the Norse myths about you know Pandora's box to Odin's raven and all that kind of stuff, and had this really peculiar sort of um, art in it that to this day I can see in my mind. And it's re- I can't remember the name. About of the it, delay, it's really but... famous. That might be the one. But like, I feel like this is is my sort of version of that. Like, it would have done the same thing for my childhood mind. Does that wow. make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm so proud of y'all. Proud of Ned and all these writers. Uh, by the way, how many stories are in this book? Twenty five. Wow. And I think like a good half of those are habit writers. That's yeah, I yeah. think that's right. The exact number. Um, yeah. but the, this felt, we, you know, we've been talking about collaboration, um, and this felt like exactly what the rabbit room is supposed to be doing in terms mm-hmm. of, um, this is a book that comes directly out of a community, yeah. a community of, of very experienced writers and, and brand new writers and everyone in between. Um, and it just, it felt very right. And I'm so, I'm proud and that we got to do this and that we, um, get to introduce people yeah. to writers who, you know, in our community that um, maybe this is the, you know, the first time that their, uh, their work is getting out there. Into yeah. the I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Well, I, uh, I just am so thrilled with the work y'all have done. So, so thrilled for these members of the habit who are, you know, finding themselves in print many, many of them for the first time. So, so yeah. uh, thanks for the work you've done. Uh, King Arthur and Queen Guinevere <laughs> of the Lost Forest, the Wild Forest, sorry. And uh, I can't wait to see this book make its way in the world. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having us, man. Yeah. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. 
and thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.